evening to John chapter 17. You know, on Good Friday, there are so many um, things we could do. We could look at those last moments on the cross together. Uh, we could learn, look at that day. Uh, we, could, we could look at the trial of Jesus as he was uh, led from the Lord's table, uh, what we call communion, through the Garden of Gethsemane, and then to the cross, you know, through those trials, those unjust trials, and then the incredible beatings and the things that were laid upon him. So there's such a wide array of things that we could look at. You know, on these Christian holidays, so often there's really only one passage we can look at or one type of passage. You know, the birth of Christ, we're looking at those passages that talk about his birth. The triumphal entry last Sunday, we're often looking at those passages that just talk about, you know, Palm Sunday and what happened on that day. But when we come to a Good Friday and looking at that, there's just a wide array of things we could look at. So as I was thinking about what could we and what should we look at this evening, uh, I do what I always do when I come to a season like this. I, I just begin reading through it, reading through all the accounts, reading through the Gospels. And what just jumped out at me was John 17. And so if you would turn there, Let me uh, sort of place for you where we are in this evening. Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. He hasn't yet been put on trial. But if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, if you go back to chapter 13, this is where Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, and this is John's account of what happened that evening in the upper room. You know, so many of the, uh, the other Gospels give us a much shorter account, and they give us an account perhaps of Jesus uh, you know, ministering to them in various ways and conversations that he had. And then they sort of quickly move into the time of the Lord's table or communion, that last Passover meal that they had together. But John sort of elongates that evening for us, and we're so thankful to him by the Holy Spirit for doing that. In John 13, we find Jesus there ministering to his disciples. That's where he washed their feet, and he gave them an example. He gave them the commandment that they should love one another as he has loved them. And then in John 14, we have so many of the amazing things that Jesus said to them that we probably have underlined in our Bibles. You know, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, and all of these things, have you been with me so long and uh, you're saying, show, me the Father, show us the Father. You know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All of these things, Jesus begins talking about and promising the Holy Spirit, the most complete teaching on the Holy Spirit. Uh, As far as Jesus looking forward and saying the helper would come, that comes to us in John 14, 15, and 16. At the end of chapter 14, we have an interesting uh, phrase for us in verse 31. Uh, It says, at the very end of verse 31, he says, Arise, let us go from here. So at the end of 14... Jesus takes his disciples, leaves the upper room, and makes his way from the upper room out to the Garden of Gethsemane. So what we find recorded for us in John chapter 15, that incredible passage on abiding in the vine, that happens as he's walking with his disciples from the upper room out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then what we find recorded for us in chapter 16 and chapter 17 
is all happening either on the way or in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as you read through these chapters, again, they're just so filled with amazing things. I encourage you, if you've not been reading through the gospel accounts this week as we've been making our way from Palm Sunday to the cross, to go back and do that, it really doesn't take that long to do it, and there's so much there for us. But as you come to chapter 17, we find what some have termed the high priestly prayer. Uh, My Bible says Jesus prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for those who would would later come after them. And as we look at chapter 17, it just seems that there's so much there for us this evening. So in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So here Jesus is, probably in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we aren't told where this prayer happens in relation to that prayer, remember, where he takes his disciples aside, Peter, James, and John. There's a group of them together, and he says, you three come with me a bit further, and that's where he goes, and he prays that prayer, sweating great drops of blood. This is likely before that, uh, in, that, in the course of that evening before he went aside for that prayer because that prayer happened just before they came to get him and arrest him. So as Jesus is praying these things, certainly John heard them because he recorded them for us. And in- interestingly, this prayer of Jesus in John 17 is only recorded for us here in John's gospel. So as we think about this prayer Let's remember, Jesus knows what is about to happen. He's about to go to the cross. Within uh, minutes or within an hour or so from this time, the troops are going to come. They're going to arrest him. And so we can gain an incredible insight into the life and to the mind and the heart of Jesus by reading and understanding these words here in this prayer that he makes in these first five verses for himself. So before we consider them, I want you to think about yourself in terms of when you get in a very stressful situation, when you get in a situation where you, know, you, don't, you don't know what's going to happen, you don't, you don't know what the end or the outcome is going to be, and you're just so filled with anxiety. And now think about Jesus and his perspective. So in these first five, five verses, he lifts up his eyes to heaven And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. Now, for context's sake, if you let your eyes wander back uh, to verse, excuse me, to chapter 16, he said, verse 32, indeed, the hour is coming, yet has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. So the first thing we need to remember, just as Jesus remembered, is that the Father is always with us. 
So no matter what we go through, God is with us. He said in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Truer words have never been spoken, right? But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, yet he hadn't even gone to the cross yet. He hadn't even gone through the problem. He hadn't even faced the turmoil. He hadn't faced the cross yet. And he said, the Father's already given me the victory in essence. I have overcome the world. What a difference in perspective that would make for you and me if when we're facing a problem, a problem of any size, of any magnitude, and we remember these words, I have overcome the world, be of good cheer. Before you get into the problem, before you know the outcome, you see, we get so focused on outcomes, don't we? We just want to know the answer. We just want to know how it's going to work out. And yet the word of Jesus here is, don't worry about that you know the ending. The ending is, I have already overcome the world. And so in verse, chapter 17, verse 1, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son also may glorify you. So certainly there is something divine going on. Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me, that I may glorify you. What if that was our perspective when we face trials, when we face difficulties? Lord, this isn't about me, really. It's about you. I want people to see you in me as I go through this, whatever this is. And he says, I want to glorify you, that your son may glorify you. To glorify God is to basically shine a spotlight on God, right? It's to make his, his reputation, his name known. And when we as Christians walk around with a gloomy face, with a lack of joy and, and wearing the weight of the world on our shoulders or whatever we're facing, we actually, in that moment, are, if you will, being a very poor witness for the goodness of God in our lives, the God that we say that we believe in, the God that we say has rescued us from sin and from Satan. That God, he is shining his light upon us. And in that moment, the purpose of our lives and the, and the crucible is to bring glory and honor to God, not to get the answer and get everything back to normal. It's not to solve the problem. It's to give glory to God. And if we could just get that in our mind, our purpose is always to bring glory to God, just as was Jesus' purpose. It's always about him. It's not about me. The problem is, isn't it, we always make it about us when we go through these times of difficulty. And so he said in verse two, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus is doing something here that none of us could ever do. We can't pray that part of the prayer, can we? Because God had determined that Jesus would be the redemptor. He would be the one whose blood would bring salvation to the world. His blood would be the one that would become the propitiation for our sins, meaning his blood would cover the altar of God so that God would look down and see the blood of Christ and his wrath would be satisfied. Not us, you know, we can't do that. See, we're, we're benefactors of that. But Jesus is concerned here in the moments before his death 
that his father be glorified, and that all flesh that God has given to him through salvation would have eternal life. You see, Jesus is looking at the situation, not in terms of how it affects him and the pain and the suffering he's going to go through, although certainly his prayer where he sweat great drops of blood, he was feeling that. But he was concerned for others, not for himself. Verse 3, somewhat a well-known verse. Hopefully it's one of those that's underlined in your Bible. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Why is that so important for us? Because Jesus defines for you and me what is eternal life. He says eternal life is knowing you. The word know, when you break it down in the Greek, I'm sure you're all dying to know this, is in the present active subjunctive. What that means is that you should keep on knowing. Not just know somebody like I've met someone, shook their hand, maybe become acquainted with them and then moved on. No, this is talking about a relationship that's made and he says that you should keep on knowing him. So we're introduced to Jesus, but now it's a lifelong relationship. Life is an active involvement in an environment, and in, in that environment, it is dominated by the presence of God. We live in his presence. So that's what Jesus is saying here, that they may know you, the only true God. I don't know about you, but it's probably just because I'm getting older, but when I see the news, when I see the things happening in the world, not just the current events of the last few days, but the world is just getting crazier by the moment. And we know that until the time where the Antichrist comes and where the tribulation begins, it's going to continue to get crazier. Until the time that the church is raptured and taken out, it's going to get worse. We should not be fooled into thinking that somehow things are just going to settle down in the world and get better. That's not going to happen. Because the world is under the sway of the wicked one, John tells us. And so we need to focus on that relationship, the eternal life relationship that we may know him. Notice it says, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent that's the only relationship that should matter to us. Are you saying my, my husband or my wife or my children shouldn't matter? No, of course not. But by order of priority, this is the relationship that matters the most. And he says in verse 4, I have glorified you, speaking to the Father, on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, God, I have represented you well here on the earth. Probably can't pray that one, can we? But it certainly is something we should endeavor for, isn't it? You see, this is why eternal life is so important to us. We aren't to trust in our flesh. We aren't to trust in our efforts. We are to trust in him. As Paul said in Galatians 2.20, we are to let the life of Christ be lived in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see, the burden isn't on us to, to do good and to you know, necessarily be well in, in terms of how we live and, and how we do these things. Our goal is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
to abide in Christ, John 15. And so if we want to glorify God in a similar manner to the way Jesus glorified God, then we need to focus on that relationship. And he says here, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. That speaks of the faithfulness of Jesus, doesn't it? That he was faithful to keep his eyes on the prize, that he was focused on his father, that he was focused on the mission that his father had given him. Luke 19.10, that the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's saying, I did that. I did that well. Only Jesus could say that. And so we trust in Jesus. Why? Because he is the author of our salvation. God looks at him and he is satisfied. So that when he looks at us, he doesn't see someone who has failed, someone who is filled with sin. He sees a person who is covered by the blood of his son. And so he says now in verse... Five And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This verse speaks to us as Jesus is praying about his deity, about who he really is. He really is God incarnate. He really was there at the beginning of creation. He really was there in heaven with God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all the way back at the beginning of time. And of course, the Father had sent the Son on a special mission to the earth to, be, uh, to take on human flesh and to live among us and to represent God among us. But now Jesus is looking to the future just as we are to look to the future. The glory which I had with you before the world was. We need to take hope and consolation in that, who Jesus is. If he wasn't God, if he wasn't a part of the Trinity, then he would have just been a good man. You know, the, the Mormons say that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer and that they are equal, making Jesus a created being. And that sets up sort of the, the divine struggle being between, you know, basically two brothers who are vying for the attention of their father and fighting with one another and Satan has just as much power as Jesus. No, 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 no. Jesus is God. Satan is a created being. He's a fallen angel. And so Jesus goes back to that glory that he had with the Father. That's where he is now as he sits at the right hand and ever lives to make intercession for us. But then as he's prayed for himself to be strengthened as he's about to walk through the balance of this evening, notice now that he shifts his focus in verse 6 to you and me. Really to the disciples who were there but then, by extension, you know, we are disciples as well. But let's look at how he prayed for his disciples. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Notice Jesus' view of his disciples. He says, they, they weren't mine, they were yours, and you gave them to me. And you see, in the church... You are not the disciples of the pastor, per se, or the church that you go to. You are the disciples of the Father. You belong to Jesus. We are here to hopefully do what he's given us to do, to fairly represent him, to properly represent him, and to give you his word. And Jesus did that. But now let's think about, as Jesus is praying there, our relationships what has he given us? Whom has he given us? Our families, 
our husbands, our wives, our children, our parents, the other people in our families. You see, in a sense, God has given those relationships to us as a charge. You see, those people, those relationships belong to him, but now we, like Jesus, are to shepherd those relationships and point people back to the Father. And notice Jesus said about these disciples as he did those things with them, he said, they have kept your word. What more could you want if you were Jesus than to know that your disciples have kept the word that they, that they had been given by the Father through the Son? How much more important is that for us in our relationships to give people the word of God? Verse 7, now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. So it was apparent as Jesus was giving them God the Father, as he was uh, representing God, as he was giving them God's word, that they knew that the words that Jesus was giving them was from the Father. How it should also be with us. He said, <clears throat> for I have, given the, I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus is dealing with what God has set right in front of him. The world's out there, right? We, you know, sometimes we pray, and I understand the heart, God saved the world. But God wants to save those who are in front of us. He wants to, to work with us in the context where he's placed us. And notice how Jesus says here, they have received the words that uh, you've given me, that I've given them, in verse eight, and then they have believed that you have sent me. You see, it's important to believe that Jesus was sent by God to the earth. And that's so important for the people that we share with and that we minister to that they believe this. And you know, we can't make people believe something, can we? We have to just keep sharing God's word with them because that's what Jesus is focused on here, isn't it? I gave them your word. I ministered your word to them. And they received it and they believed it. You see, that's our goal. So what do we do when we're ministering to people and they aren't receiving, they aren't believing? We keep praying that they will receive and that they will believe. That's part of the ministry. Just be consistent, be faithful, be persistent in giving the word. And so Jesus did that, and that's what he prayed. And he said, I, I pray for them, I do not pray for the world. So keep praying for those who are in front of you whom God has given you to minister. Verse 10, and all are mine and yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus is saying very simply there, God has given them to me to minister. I give them back to God. There's a symbiotic relationship there. Jesus wasn't looking at them and saying, hey man, these are my disciples. Don't mess with them. He's saying, no, they belong to the Father. So he had that proper understanding, that proper relationship with them. You know, people come and go in our lives. They come, they work here for a while, then they move to another place, those kinds of things. We need to continue to pray for them and pray that as they move, you know, that God hands them off to someone else. Other relationships will come into their lives where they will continue to minister the word of God. And then he says in verse 11, now I am no longer in the world, 
but these are in the world. So he knows as he graduates, so to speak, that they're going to be left behind. And so he now begins to pray for them, that these who are in the world and and that I come to you. And then he says, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are one. He's focused on that relationship, isn't he? He's saying, you know, after I'm gone, you know, sometimes we have that idea that we're indispensable, that we're the only ones bringing truth into their lives. And maybe that's true, but you know, God is bigger than us, isn't he? God has other means, other methods, other people, other relationships. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Look at the focus of how Jesus viewed those relationships. I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wants them to realize the fullness of the word. He wants them to begin to grasp on their own the word and what it means, to have their own vision of what God wants to do in their lives. And he says, uh, verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Isn't that true? Because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Boy, that is so rich, isn't it? I do not pray you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. You know, again, we want circumstances to be changed. We just want things to be different. What needs to be different is us. The circumstances are going to change continually. The pressures of the world will change. The rules in the world will change. But God never changes. His word never changes. Therefore, our faith, if it's truly in God, if it's truly in the Lord Jesus Christ, if it's truly in his word, our faith will not falter in times of trouble. They are not of the world. We need to remember that, don't we? We are not of the world. We are not destined for this world. When our days are over, it's not going to be about how much we left behind for our kids. It's going to be about the eternal future, the eternal hope of glory. Notice he says in verse 17, not God bless them with riches. He says, sanctify them by your truth. That word sanctify means to make holy. It means to set apart. Lord, sanctify them. Set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. Well, it's a different perspective, isn't it, than what the world gives us. The world will look at us as his sons and daughters if we are truly sanctified in his truth as crazy people. In fact, the way the world is going now, we're going to be looked at as way worse than religious fanatics. We're going to be looked at as bigots and as haters because we hold to this ancient book in their mind. But according to what Jesus is saying as he is praying here before he goes to the cross, he's saying, I've given them your word. I've loved them. 
I've ministered to them. I have prayed for them. They are not in the world. Lord, help them to remember they're not in the world. They're not of the world. I've given them your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, let them be strong in your truth. Let them believe it. Let them receive it. You see, that's something that goes beyond just sort of an intellectual, okay, I've accepted this truth. It goes deep within our being, within our soul. And he says, as you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. You see, those disciples, certainly, we know the history as we, we read through the New Testament, God sent his disciples into the world to plant the church and to minister to people and to preach the gospel and do all those things. And he said, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Well, Jesus said, I want to be a good example to them. The sanctification that you do in their lives, Lord, do the same thing in my life. In fact, let the sanctification in my life spill over to their life. Again, Jesus is about to go to the cross. Listen to his thinking. Listen to his heart. And then beginning in verse 20, We have these wonderful little headings. Jesus prays for all believers. So now he he thinks, think about what he's done here. He's prayed for himself, God strengthen me that I can go through this and do a wonderful job that I can glorify your name. Lord, I'm praying for the disciples that you've given me. And we've just gone through all that. Now he's saying, think about his thinking. He's thinking so far beyond. He says, Lord, all those who come after, we wanna pray for them as well. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Wow. Talk about vision, talk about foresight. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. What's going to preach the gospel to the world? Our relationships, our relationship with God the Father, our relationship with God the Son, our relationship with his word. And Jesus is now saying, I I want people to realize, I want the world to realize that for those who believe in us, that there's something special about them, that there is a unique Power, there's a unique relationship. You know, that the strength of the relationship that we have with God and His Word should speak volumes to the world around us. I do not pray for these alone, but for all who will believe through them. And the glory, verse 22, which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. So Jesus is saying that the glory he has with the Father that he's given not only to that first generation of disciples, but that somehow he is going to impart that glory of the relationship to those who would believe after them, who would believe as a result of their word. So this is something that he will perpetually do throughout all time and all history and all generations. Then he says in verse 23, I and them you and me, that they may may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now Jesus begins to extend it to the fact that you and I become transformed by the love of God, that we become transformed by that relationship that he had with the Father 
and that he shared with those first disciples and that now gets passed along to us to those subsequent generations. You see, the love of God surpasses so much. The love of God speaks a language. I mean, talk about love languages. You know, the five love languages or whatever. You know what? The Bible has one love language. It's the love of God. And he says it is a powerful, transforming love. And that uh, we have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus commenting on that love, that's an eternal love, that's an everlasting love. That's a love that supersedes everything. I saw recently someone had posted on some social media account talking about this week, about Holy Week and leading up to the time of the cross. It said, consider that on the evening that Jesus was betrayed, speaking of Judas Iscariot specifically, that this is a man whom he loved, whose feet that he washed, and yet who betrayed him. And yet he never stopped loving him. He said, now consider that in the light of the relationships that you have. He said, we find it hard to forgive. Do you think Jesus found it hard to forgive Judas? I think not. So as we continue here, this love of God, this desire uh, for the Father, for that relationship, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. You know, this love that God had given Jesus from before the foundation of the world, this is something that formed the foundation of his relationship. The way Jesus related to people, the way he loved people. You know, as we think about those stories, those encounters, the people that Jesus met, the lepers, the blind people, the people who were demon-possessed, the woman by the well, the woman with the issue of blood who reached through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment. Jesus never once was irritated with them, was he? Never once was he, look, man, I'm tired. You know, it's been a long week. Don't, don't bother me right now. He didn't do any of that stuff, did he? He always had time for people. And he always gave them love. Not shortness, not impatience, not foul language, not some backhanded thing, you know, hey, when are you gonna grow up? He always gave them love. We should consider that. Oh, righteous Father, as he finishes here in verse 25, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Interesting, Jesus is looking at the relationship as a human being that he had with his Father, And it was a holy relationship. It was a righteous relationship. It was a relationship founded on love. And he's saying, that relationship that I had with you, he said, the world didn't know it, but I'm displaying it to the world. I'm revealing it to the world. And he said, I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Now again, Jesus is praying here for all those who would come after. So all the way down through history, through the generations, through through all the years of the church, the love of God, 
I've declared to them your name, and I'll declare it with the love that you have loved me. And that it may be in them and I in them. You see, Jesus is saying he would be with us. Earlier he said that God would be with us. And now he's saying, I will be with you. Remember at the end of Matthew's gospel, as he's about to ascend into heaven, he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus wants us to know, even today, that he will be with us even to the end of the age. And that the love that he has given us, he will continue to pour out and manifest in our lives. Now this prayer, Jesus our high priest, that he is praying. He's praying this right before he goes to the cross. There's so much here. I encourage you to go back and read this prayer. We went through it fairly quickly tonight. But I want you to be encouraged by this prayer. I want you to be encouraged by the word of God. I want you to be encouraged by the strength of the relationship that Jesus had with his father. And notice he basically imposed that upon his disciples and upon us. I was talking with someone this week. It's interesting, I have regular contact with this guy. He claims he's a brother in Christ, and I certainly hope that he is. But one of the things he told me as we were together and interacting is that... um, he told me about how he kind of came to the Lord and whatnot, but I guess a lot of the friends he has are, are people who are, uh, I would say by the way he's describing it, come across in a legalistic way. And this one particular guy kind of just beats, according to him, kind of beats him overhead with the Bible. You got to read the Bible, man. You got to read the Bible. You got to read the Bible. Well, that's true. But the way he went about it from what is being described to me was in a very unkind and unloving way. And so as he was telling me this, God opened a door for me to share with him and say, look, maybe he's not sharing it with you in the most kind and loving way, and I get that, but it's true. And he's like, but, but I, I don't like to read. And I said, well, then that means you don't like to grow. That, that means you can't grow, that you won't grow. And you're saying that God saved you and that he loves you and that you've been born again and I praise God for that. And I said, I hope that's true. But you will never go beyond that if you don't read the word of God. And part of what this guy had said, I mean, I talked to him about, you know, all sorts of things, contradictions in the Bible. And sometimes people, they come on and they just like, I don't know, (laughs) they give them too much. It's like they turn on the fire hose and just blast them. And I said, listen, man, I'm gonna tell you what I tell everybody who kind of starts out where you are. Read the Gospels. Start there. And in fact, I always tell people, look, there's a lot, there's 66 66 books books in the Bible. Start with the Gospel of John. Just focus on that one. I said, do you have a Bible? Yes, I have a Bible. Good. Focus on that one. Just read the Gospel of John and let him speak to you. I said, listen, when you get alone with him and you let him speak to you through his word, your life is going to change. And what you're going to find is that nobody's going to have to tell you to read the Bible. You're going to start reading it and you won't be able to put it down because God the Holy Spirit is going to reveal God the Son and God the Father to you through the Scriptures. And then you on your own are going to begin to have that experience and you're going to want to talk to other people about what he's doing in your life. But you see, it's got to start somewhere. And it starts in that relationship 
with Jesus and with the Father. And you cannot have that relationship apart from the Word, apart from the Bible. And as we parted in that conversation, he said, you know, I feel so much better. He said, I'm going to start reading it. Gospel of John? Yeah, Gospel of John. So I'm going to pray that this guy, just as we've been talking about here, you know, pray for the person that God puts in front of you. I'm going to pray that Richard, that's this guy's name, gets it. That he receives and that he believes. And every time I have an opportunity to sort of have a touch point with him, I'm going to ask him, not in a condemning way, hey, Richard, how you doing in the Gospel of John? Is the Lord speaking to you? Do you have any questions? You know, maybe sometimes we need to say to people, hey, why don't we sit down? Can we, can we have coffee sometime and sit down and maybe do this together? Let's just read the Bible together. I'm not trying to set up a teaching session. I just want to sit down and say, look, let's read it together. Let's just discuss it. We're both disciples trying to follow the Lord Jesus. Let's bring people along in that journey. And so here Jesus was on that night, thinking not of himself so much, but thinking of the disciples, thinking of others, looking forward. Look at the vision he had. And I pray that he would give us, as our high priest, as the one who is our example in all things, the same vision that he imparted. In fact, I pray that the prayer that Jesus prayed that night would be answered in us today and going forward. What greater answer could there be that people who are 2,000 years later are reading those words, receiving those words, living those words, and allowing the love of God to come into our lives and to transform our being, transform our thinking, transform our actions to where we no longer care about the stuff of this world, but we only care about what God has given to us to do, and that's to manifest his name to everybody we come in contact with. Amen? Lord, we love you this evening. We thank you for what you've shared with us here. And as we come to a time at the table, and we remember that evening that you spent with your disciples, and how you shared your heart with them as you partook together of the the Passover meal, and you said, this is my body and this is my blood. May we remember, Lord, may we be touched. May we, now 2,000 years later, may it be as if we were there. And may your love be imparted to us this evening as we take together. So as we sing, Lord, and as we remember, may you visit us here. In Jesus' name, amen.